In this episode, I'm joined by a fellow history buff and tour guide, and we're going to dive into some fun stories from past presidential inaugurations. As you may have heard, the 2021 inauguration is going to be significantly scaled back because of COVID-19. So hopefully these stories will give you some inspiration and a sense of what inauguration would have been like. But before I start the episode, I just want to say that for the same reason inauguration is a shell of itself this year, small businesses like Tripax DC are still getting hammered. The good news is that there are some completely free things you can do to help support in the meantime. Write a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the Tripax DC YouTube channel, and follow along on all of the social medias that you like. And when you do start traveling again, try to be conscious of where you spend your money. Small businesses, tour companies, restaurants, and retail shops could all use your support. And with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. In this episode, I am joined by Aaron Killian, a self-proclaimed history nerd and storyteller. Aaron is a founder of Historic America, which runs multi-sensory storytelling tours. So, Aaron, welcome to TripHacks DC. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Thank you for having me. Of course. I really wanted to have you involved because you are a big history buff, just like me, of course. And because inauguration only comes once every four years, I wanted to make sure that we were able to tell some of the stories from these past events, especially because... Well, quite frankly, we found out a couple of weeks ago that the 2021 inauguration isn't going to be much of an inauguration. An inauguration unlike any other. I think it might be worth starting with, why do we have an inauguration and, you know, how far back does this thing go? Well, you know, we need an inauguration, so there's some way to uh, uh, give notice that uh, the peaceful transfer of power is happening, right? We've been doing it for over uh, 220 years now, so it's something to be excited uh, about the first inauguration right under the new the new constitution was for George Washington in I believe 1789 it was uh, the first go around so actually I anticipated talking about the first inauguration you might recognize this uh, Rob being a tour guide that has undoubtedly taken groups to Mount Vernon for people that are listening this might not work but for people that are watching the video you ever seen this statue this little statuette that you get at the Mount Vernon gift shop Rob I have seen that yes I'm, I'm a sucker for a statuette, and so this little statuette shows uh, George Washington being sworn in, and uh, I thought that when I saw it for the first time, oh, I must have it, because I'm a big Washington fan. So I have a reminder of the very first inauguration of the president in uh, in my, uh, my office here, back at Historic America HQ. So you have uh, this, this figurine showing George Washington with his hand on a book, I guess the Bible, and that is the oath of office. And so the oath of office is literally the oath that the president recites. It says, I'm now the president and I'm going to uphold the duties. But the inauguration is kind of that plus all the other stuff that goes with it. So it's the president's speech and it's the parade and it's all the parties that happen the night before and the night after. So what else happens besides the oath of office? Well, you've got the uh, uh, the swearing in and the oath of office uh, that sort of begins it. I, I like to go just right before we start with the inauguration itself. Um, I was doing a little bit of uh, digging about how long the process of moving the old president out and the new president in takes. So evidently the day for the outgoing president starts around like 8 a.m. And that's when they say goodbye to the staff, which can be sort of an emotional moment. Uh, and then the new president, the president-elect arrives and uh, they have coffee 
coffee together, right? And usually the uh, the first ladies are present uh, as well. And then once they both leave for the inauguration, there's about 100 people that descend on the White House, and they have like a five or six hour turnaround in order to move the one president out and the new president in. And it's a pretty painstaking process that by the time they're done, you know, the new president's toothbrush has been put in the holder, the clothes are folded, and they're in the, uh, you know, the dresser ready to go. So that whole process is unfolding. And literally, there are two moving vans that are backed up to the White House, right? One pointed one way and one pointed another. And uh, I'm, I'm struck by that imagery. And then it's one of my favorite things when you take a group to the White House Visitor Center, uh, when Barbara Bush is talking about her experience on Inauguration Day, how stunned she was that she had coffee with the Reagans that morning in the White House, and then she comes back you know, later that day, and pictures of her are on the wall. You think, wow, what a great turnaround uh, that is. So there's that sort of pre-inaugural stuff, and then afterwards, you know, you have the parade, you have the inaugural balls, uh, and then, right, you, then you have four years of, of Terrific presidential leadership, <laughs> hopefully. But that pre-inauguration stuff, it struck me very interesting when I was doing some research on it. If you've ever moved apartments, you know that that is a fairly painstaking thing to do. So the idea that you're going to turn over uh, the White House of all places in you know four hours is quite the thing to imagine. Yeah, evidently, President Obama had an admiral oversee the process, right? Because you want, you want to make sure you get military efficiency at play <laughs> there. So we should all have an admiral when we, when we move, basically, Rob. Yeah, so the White House is a key geographic location on Inauguration Day. That's where the uh, outgoing president is moving out and the incoming president is moving in. On the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue, we have the Capitol, and that's another important geographic location because that is where the oath of, off- the oath of office happens, the, both the presidential and the vice presidential. What I find interesting about the oaths is that for most of our country's history, they took place on the east side of the building, which is the opposite side where they take place now. Up until fairly recently, it, it was all done on the uh, the East Portico, I guess, the east side of the Capitol building, however you care to phrase it. And then it was only when Ronald Reagan becomes president uh, in 1981 that it switches because uh, and switches over to the west front of the Capitol building because the inauguration has become such an event at that point that they need uh, more space for it. And I remember when I was a baby tour guide, um, I was doing tours for Capital City Segway. And the story that the Segway guides told about the reason for the move is that the west front of the Capitol faces toward California, right? And Reagan coming from California wanted to uh, look towards the west as he was being inaugurated as though Reagan had any say about which side of the Capitol building he got sworn in on. But it wasn't the truth. Um, but I was a baby tour guide. I didn't know any better. Then I researched it and figured out, oh, they were just, you know, trying to sell a bill of goods. But yes, Reagan is the first one to take the oath on the west side. And then actually his second inauguration, it was so darn cold that they had to move it into the rotunda, lest uh, you know somebody get frostbite. Yeah, January 20th is inauguration day, and it's a total gamble in Washington, D.C., whether it's going to be bitter cold or fairly warm. You never really know. I think to me what is interesting about the switch from the east to the west side of the building is that I guess for most of the country's history, the inauguration was a government function. It was something where important people in government gathered and they had this important function, but it was not something that was a spectator event. It was not a tourist site like it is now where people are pilgrimaging from all over the country to come and see. And so I guess it was with the presidents prior to Reagan that that kind of started. Yeah, I think it seems to me in my sort of looking over the different inaugurations that 
the the first time that you had the inauguration really become an event was when Andrew Jackson gets uh, inaugurated in, I believe it's 1828, 1829, uh, thereabouts, that because, you know, he was this populist figure and heralding this new age of American politics, right? You know, the great unwashed masses from all, all, over the, uh, all over the map came in. But then after Jackson's inauguration, sort of the inauguration as event goes away for a while, right? But at least with Jackson, I think you have a, a clear moment when it's really, it really does become a popular uh, event. And then I think probably to a certain extent, Washington's uh, first inauguration uh, as well there at uh, Federal Hall in uh, in New York, right? The swearing in, at least, right? When they step out onto the balcony to do the swearing in at Federal Hall, you have lots of people watching that. But then most of it is done right inside the Senate chamber. Um, so in terms of, uh, uh, of like people showing up, coming from all over the country to see the inauguration, probably Andrew Jackson, I would think. Yeah. But even with Jackson, you know, transportation was a little bit different Back then, you know, granted the country was not as big, uh, it didn't go as far west, but it wasn't like you were hopping on the next flight or you were hopping in your car and driving cross country over a period of a couple days. This was a major pilgrimage that you would have to make. And so I guess in the modern era, we see these, it goes from a big crowd that you might have had with Jackson on the East Portico to a, just a massive crowd that, you know, tw- 2009 was the the record breaker. That was the largest crowd ever, um, estimated 1.8 million people. But uh, that's something that people really did pilgrimage for in a way that I think they hadn't before. Oh, yeah. 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 No, that concept of sort of the modern inauguration and getting your hundreds of thousands of people uh, into Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a spectacle. And, uh, you know, regardless of if your guy or gal wins or loses the race, right, regardless of who you're pulling for, to be there for the spectacle and to be there to witness the peaceful transition of power, right, is is something. That's why many of those folks that are coming for the inauguration, uh, maybe the person that got elected wasn't the person they were polling for, but they want to be there for the event, right? And that that notion that we've been doing it for so long, it's it's a special thing. That's why I always think that folks that are protesting the inauguration, right? It's their right to protest the inauguration, but it almost misses the point uh, in a way because you're, you're by protesting it, I think you're missing the fact that um, this is something that has gone on for uh, a long time in the United States, and it's something to be very proud of. Um, so it's uh, something that occurs to me every four years. Yeah, and speaking of celebrating or protesting, um, I want to go back to Andrew Jackson, who we already talked about a little bit. Uh, I actually want to go back even farther than that. I want to go to Thomas Jefferson because – Thomas Jefferson was our third president, and he started a tradition that when I tell this to people on my tours nowadays, they frankly don't believe me because it seems impossible in 2020. Thomas Jefferson invited people to the White House to come visit on Inauguration Day, and he called it an open house, just like you would have an open house uh, at your own home during the holiday season and invite people to to come and visit. And Andrew Jackson's kind of got a little bit out of control. Now, historians have debated exactly how out of control, but... Let's just say a lot of people wanted to attend. Oh, definitely. I think that it, it depends on the tour guide you're with when they tell the Jackson story. Like sometimes when the Jackson story gets told, right, you know, there was a velociraptor that got in there and people were swinging from the chandeliers and the White House burned down, that type of thing. Um, and then maybe the, you know, the 2,000 pound block of cheese uh, makes its way in, right, which is, I think, later on in the Jackson presidency. But anyway, Jackson's uh, inaugural festivities that take place at the White House, again, because you have these the great unwashed masses – 
uh, coming in to celebrate the election of this populist president of the West. Um, they come piling into the, the White House itself. And so rather than have it just be society folks that are there for this inaugural party, it's, you know, people wearing homespun and uh, uh, spitting tobacco on the, the carpets. And there were so many people crammed into the White House that as they were moving the big punch bowl with whatever orange flavored drink they were going to enjoy, right? The punch bowl holders got jostled and the punch bowl dropped. And then Andrew Jackson was sur- surrounded by this crush of people and then uh, sort of had to be uh, helped in order to extricate himself from the crowd. And, and as soon as he could, he beat it over to uh, the National Hotel so he wouldn't have to suffer through the party anymore. And then in order to get all these revelers out of the house, right, eventually they say, hey, we've got whiskey on the lawn. More whiskey on the lawn, everybody. And that helps get everybody sort of out of the house so they can begin the cleanup process. But the the historical uh, sort of evaluation of how raucous the party got, it, it began immediately afterwards, right? People talking about, oh, it was so out of control or no, it wasn't. It kind of depended on how, on how you felt about Jackson, right? If you were a Jackson fan, you said, hey, it was, it was a grand affair and any damage that happened was minimal, right? It was really a good time had by all. And then if you didn't like Jackson, you said, oh, this was just an example of how the city is going to pot uh, and how this is going to be four terrible years um, with him and his bunch of yahoos from out west running the show. So where you stand on it is sort of where you sat politically. Yeah, so not so different from today, I suppose. But big big party on Inauguration Day. That is not a tradition that Jackson started. Like I said, Thomas Jefferson had the first open house. But the president after him, James Madison, actually had the first official inaugural ball, which I guess is a more formal party that they would have on Inauguration Day. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's interesting. It was it was held at a hotel that was up on Capitol Hill. I think it was called Long's um, Hotel, and uh, evidently it was, was pretty well attended. And it got so hot in there, they had to break the windows uh, to let fresh air in. Uh, but it, it sort of stands to, to reason that it was going to be a bigger affair, because if, if you know a little bit about James Madison, you know that he actually lost one of his first races for elected office because he didn't want a glad hand, right? He didn't want to do the thing where like, oh, we, we pass whiskey around at my campaign event, and um, uh, and you know we sort of press the flesh in politic. Um, he learned early on after he lost that first race that, oh, well, well maybe I have to actually sort of have people over. <laughs> maybe I have to do the social thing. And then when he hooks up with his wife, Dolly Madison, right, she understands the importance of a social function, right? So it stands to reason that he, having learned these lessons and having the wife that he had, would understand, hey, maybe it's important to have an inaugural ball to sort of seal the deal at the end of the day. An inaugural ball is a little misleading, at least nowadays, because now there are many inaugural balls, and they're in many different locations. I believe some are at hotels still. Many of them are at the Washington Convention Center, so you imagine you know, a space that you might rent out for a wedding. They're renting out and essentially having a wedding without the marriage, but a big party in that sort of space. And so I know that the president is often very busy on inauguration evening because they're throwing all these parties, all these balls around town. And if you're attending an inauguration ball, your expectation is, hey, I'm going to see the new president. So the, the new president has to travel around to all these different parties so that he can make an appearance. Yeah, I got to go to the Black Tie and Boots Ball, which is the one that the Texas delegation always throws. And I wasn't there when the president showed up. Uh, but at, at, at these balls, usually when the president shows up, he's expected to dance, right? That he and the first lady are going to have their uh, their first dance. And, and depending on the number of balls that the president goes to, he might have to dance, you know, five, six, seven, eight times during the course of a given night. I think famously, pretty recently, uh, one of the uh, more notable dances was... Uh, 
President Obama and Michelle and uh, Beyonce sang that Etta James song at last while they had their first dance. And my understanding was that afterwards, Etta James was ticked off that she didn't get to be the one to sing the song, right? Like, this is my song. Why didn't I get brought in to sing it? But Beyonce came in to sing it. And then there's, uh, there's another great piece of video when George W. Bush is dancing with his wife, Laura, for their first dance. He was, I, I guess, uh, pretty well known as a bad dancer and didn't, didn't want to do it, wasn't keen on it. And him sort of mockingly uh, looking at his wrist to see what time it is, right, to see how much longer the dance was going to last for. But, yeah, the dances are an important part of, uh, of the inaugural ball and the location, too, right? They've, they've gotten progressively bigger in their locations and it happened at multiple locations, right? There are multiple balls around the city. And um, my understanding is that one of the places in D.C. that has uh, hosted the most balls is um, the the big architectural uh, museum, the one uh, Megs's, Montgomery Megs's barn, right there, the big red building down in Chinatown, that that was one of the first big inaugural ball locations where they could really cram people uh, in, in, their, in their hundreds and thousands. Cramming people in is not something that we will have uh, for this upcoming inauguration. And from, from what I've heard, they're probably going to cancel most, if not all of them. The Washington Convention Center is currently set up as a field hospital, so uh, not as, not as uh, set up for parties at the moment. But future inaugurations hopefully will be back to tradition. Lord willing. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Inauguration Day is January 20th. It hasn't always been that way. Uh, the original Inauguration Day was actually on March the 4th, and this is another one that's kind of puzzling when you think about it at first, but makes a little bit more sense when you start to scratch your head a little bit. Back in those days, in the early days, it took a little while to count up the votes and to figure out who won these elections, not just for president, but also for Congress. And then, you know, depending on where you lived, you might have to travel quite a distance to get to Washington, D.C. And so they, you know, set a bit of a later inauguration day uh, for that reason. Indeed. And I also learned that the reason it was March the 4th, right? You know, you could do any day in March, but why March the 4th? Uh, March the 4th was the day when the Constitution of the United States had first gone into effect. And so that's why they decided that March the 4th is going to be the day that we do it. And uh, then it gets changed, the inauguration does, to January during FDR's time in office. Uh because once FDR is inaugurated the first time around, um, it's still on March the 4th. But the Great Depression was such a, a crisis, right, that people were, were thinking, well, maybe we need to get FDR in a little bit sooner so the crisis can be dealt with. But uh, Herbert Hoover dragged his feet in the transition process, right? So the FDR administration had trouble getting, getting on its feet um, in, in order to sort of deal with the crisis effectively. So that when it's his second inauguration, FDR's second go around, they decide, why don't we just shorten this time period here? So that way for, you know, successive, uh, uh, administrations, there's not this, uh, this big rift in time between point A and point B. And there was another example too. Evidently people, uh, some people talked about maybe we should shorten up that length of time between election and inauguration during Abraham Lincoln's um, administration as well, because, you know, James Buchanan during that winter of secession there didn't do anything while the southern states, uh, those, those seven deep, uh, deep southern states secede, right? And if Abraham Lincoln had taken office a little bit sooner, maybe that crisis wouldn't have been so um, intense, right? So it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about. Yeah. Now, March 4th or January 20th uh, can fall on any day of the week. And every once in a while, it will fall on a weekend, specifically on a Sunday. Now, there is uh, an interesting story that sometimes gets told by us tour guides about Zachary Taylor and the fact that he might have actually not been president for one day because his inauguration day would have been on a Sunday and he just flat out refused to work. Yeah, exactly. And so that um, 
Zachary Taylor says we're not going to have the inauguration on the Sabbath, and so that the outgoing president and vice president, right? They they cease their their duties, their 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 job as president and vice president, and then there's sort of a hiatus of a day, and then Zachary Taylor gets sworn in, and so in that interim period there of approximately 24 hours, it was the president pro tem of the Senate that technically was serving as president of the United States. But it's again, it's a historical debate that historians have about was this man president for a day? Like, should we consider, should we say yes? Should we say no to this proposition? I can't remember the fellow's name off the uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. That's how insignificant the uh, the dude was. But yeah, for, for a day, uh, there was uh, no commander in chief. And if you want to debate it, maybe you could say there was, and it was this man who whose name is lost to history. Well, even if you can't remember that person's name, it's okay, because most people don't even remember Zachary Taylor's name. He was a fairly unmemorable president as far as our 44 presidents go. Say 44 because I'm I'm not counting Grover Cleveland twice there. Uh, (laughs) Another president who you might not remember is William Henry Harrison. I think he is interesting because he had set two records as president. He had the longest inauguration speech, and he had the shortest presidency. And depending on who you ask, the two might be related. You know, um, when I was looking uh, this up, I knew the story about William Henry Harrison and uh, the fact that he gives the long inaugural uh, address. It was over 8,000 words. It was by far the longest inaugural address in presidential history. And then the legend about it was that, you know, it was the length of the address that killed him because he refused to wear his coat and wear his gloves. And he was an old man. He was 68 years old. And uh, and the, the reason he spoke for so long is evidently the knock on William Henry Harrison was that he was a bit of a dummy. And so he wanted to prove he had some intellectual heft, right? So he writes this address by himself. And evidently Daniel Webster helped him write the address. And Daniel Webster said, like, this thing's too long. Like, Daniel Webster helped him cut the thing down to 8,400 words or whatever it was. But anyway, he gives a super long address out in the cold. And then, you know, a month later or so, he's dead. And that it was the address that killed him, right? He catches cold during the address. It probably didn't happen that way that, you know... He was fine after the address, but then because the water was so bad, uh, the water supply was so bad for the White House uh, that he probably uh, gets some type of uh, uh, bacterial infection from the water. And that's what kills him. I, I have to remember the name. It was enteric fever. I'm consulting my notes here. Enteric fever. Uh, and it was some sort of bowel distress that ended up uh, resulting in poor William Henry Harrison's demise. But I don't think it was the address that killed Not Not that you know it wouldn't have killed the listeners of boredom, but I don't think it was what killed William Henry Harrison. Yeah, I think it's a believable story because when you're a kid, your parents say, don't go out in the cold without your jacket because you're going to get sick. And, you know, it turns out that viruses make you sick, not cold air. So it's very unlikely that the fact that he went out and gave a speech for two hours without his coat is what caused him to get sick. But it's a very believable story because it kind of matches what, what with what we have learned uh, growing up. But another inauguration that I find quite interesting from, I guess, roughly the same time period from the 1800s is Abe Lincoln's inaugurations, uh, specifically his second one. Now, his second inauguration might be the best known of all the inaugurations because Uh, I believe it's the only inaugural speech that's carved into one of the famous Washington, D.C. memorials, the Lincoln Memorial. On the right side is Lincoln's second inaugural speech. It's a very good one. I always recommend people go and reread it on Wikipedia after the tour in case they haven't read it in a while. But that's a great speech from a very eventful inauguration. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's the greatest American speech in my Humble opinion. I love Lincoln's second inaugural address, which is as much a sermon as it is uh, an inaugural address. And it was pretty brief in terms of the uh, the history of presidential inaugural addresses. I believe it was just over 650 words or thereabouts. And that was um, 
Blinken's brilliance, right? That he could speak with such concision and uh, uh, with such eloquence. And uh, it is remembered this day, and rightly so, as one of the greatest inaugural addresses in American history. And I'll tell you, there are, are some uh, artifacts that when you see them, as a history nerd, that um, they really sort of vibrate with history, and uh, they're impactful, right, to see them and be near them. And specifically, Abraham Lincoln's desk, right, that he uses as the uh, the pedestal to lay his speech on for his second inaugural address that you can see in all the photos of the second inaugural address. That pedestal, that table, whatever you want to call it, is on display in the Capitol building. And, I'm, and I'm, I remember the first time I saw it, how struck I was. I also remember the first time I saw... Uh, the Bible that George Washington took the oath of office on, on display in Federal Hall. Those are artifacts that um, the first time I saw them, they just took my breath away. I had goosebumps. Um, so Lincoln's uh, second inaugural address is, uh, yeah, it, for my money, it's his best speech and, and the best speech in, in American history. And John Wilkes Booth was there, too, right? If you look at the photos, he's sort of, um, if, if, if you find, like, these highlighted photos that exist, of this is probably John Wilkes Booth, uh, that he was nearby, which is sort of irony of ironies. Yeah, I was researching the famous photo. I downloaded the highest resolution version that the Library of Congress has. It's very hard to see the faces. And uh, according to Google Images, there might be as many as 10 different people who are John Wilkes Booth. It's very difficult to identify. Uh, But I I believe historians think that he was there. We might not know exactly which of these people it is, but we think that he was there. Now, the other interesting thing about that inauguration was that Well, Booth was there. It was an amazing speech. And the vice president also gets sworn in on Inauguration Day. Now, Abraham Lincoln's first vice president was Hannibal Hamlin, and his second vice president was Andrew Johnson. Now, Lincoln is often considered by historians to be one of, if not the best U.S. president. Johnson is often considered by these same people to be one of, if not the worst U.S. president. So uh, it's quite a contrast between the two. But Johnson didn't get off to a very strong start because uh, legend has it that he was – a, a bit tipsy during the inauguration. First off, doesn't Hannibal Hamlin have the coolest name of any vice president in history, right? For such an inconsequential <laughs> for such an inconsequential vice president. What a great name. So anyway, Hannibal Hamlin out, and then Andrew Johnson comes in. Andrew Johnson, war Democrat from Tennessee, I believe, right? So uh, Lincoln brings Johnson in, just out of political necessity, right? But then uh, Johnson, he evidently he was fighting uh, the effects of typhoid fever, um, and uh, he had a touch of the typhoid, though I don't know how you can just have a touch of typhoid, right? It seems like if you're going to have typhoid, you're going to have the whole thing. Uh, but he was getting over typhoid. And so he decided to medicate himself with a little whiskey, right? And uh, I don't know, maybe it's the same effect as if, uh, you know, you're fighting a cold and you take some NyQuil and then you get all punchy. But uh, but Johnson takes some, some whiskey before his speech that he gives inside the Senate chamber. And then uh, evidently he was just bombed, or at least that's how the speech came across. So he gets up. And uh, he's in the bag and he starts speaking and then it just becomes this real mess of a speech where he starts calling out cabinet members by name and insulting them. And then evidently there's one part in particular where um, he is he's going to insult the uh, secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells. And then can't remember Gideon Wells' name and sort of calls out in a stage whisper, what's the name of the secretary of the Navy? And then Hannibal Hamlin, the dude with the cool you know, the, the dude with the cool name, like, has to tug on Johnson's coat to uh, to get him to stop, but he just keeps plowing on. And evidently, Abraham Lincoln, during all of this, just had his head, had his head in his hands, couldn't watch it. It's like when you watch one of the episodes of The Office, and it's a particularly, like, um, cringeworthy episode of The Office where the, you know, it's just so awkward that that's what it was 
watching Johnson's speech. It was it was a, an, an off the rails office episode, and then afterwards, it was sort of known that hey, like Johnson is not to be brought into the inner circle. You saw that display he put on at the inauguration, but then Lincoln right Lincoln passes away because of the assassination, and who do they have to bring in to be the next president? But the guy that gave the drunk uh, vice presidential inaugural address. So in many ways, it's lucky for Johnson that Lincoln's speech was so good because people remembered that and didn't remember his complete mess of a speech. But uh, so I, I think we've covered the oaths of office. We've covered some of the speeches. We've covered the balls. An important part of the inauguration we haven't talked about yet is the parade. And I know you've been to at least one, if not a few of these. So what happens at these inaugural parades typically? So the, the first real inaugural parade is, uh, is Jackson's inaugural parade back in the 1820s. But it was Jefferson that started the tradition of walking from the Capitol building to the White House, right? That there would be, you know, some sort of procession, I suppose. But Jackson is the first real parade. And then the parade has grown over the years to be its own event. Um, And then, you know, Rob, from your time taking groups up and down Pennsylvania Avenue, that you can see that blue line down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue, right? That they that they have to repaint every four years uh, because when the parade processes down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue, the people in the marching bands and everything, they need that guiding line to orient themselves by. So that line's always there. Um, but the parade, in terms of spectacle, uh, there have been some really special parades during the course of the inauguration's history here in D.C. I found out, I thought this was super cool, when Teddy Roosevelt got inaugurated, Geronimo, was in his parade, right? When you get Geronimo to be in your inaugural parade, that means you must be a pretty cool president. And then the Rough Riders were like right behind Geronimo. So I thought, that's pretty wicked. And then evidently Eisenhower had a real banger of a parade too. There were, I, I have some notes here. I don't, I don't I don't want people to think I memorized this off the top of my head. I got more important things to do than put these numbers in my noggin. But I thought this was fascinating. He had 73 bands during his parade, 59 floats, three elephants, three elephants, as if one wasn't enough. He had three. And then uh, he had an Alaskan dog sled team. And then there was a turtle. At least, I think it was either a real turtle or a turtle mascot. I don't know which one it was, but it was a turtle of some sort that could wave the American flag with its front legs. Now, that's a parade right there. I don't know. For, for, for my money, I think that's probably uh, the, the most spectacle that you could wish for in a parade. And I also found out that, you know, when the president looks like they have sort of the viewing platform where they watch the parade behind the bulletproof glass, you know, like the Pope Mobile has the uh, the bulletproof glass. That's the, over by the White House, right? Yeah, exactly. It's over by the White House. And that um, in inaugurations past, they brought in special architects to design that pavilion. And FDR's pavilion, they brought in a special architect that designed his pavilions to look like um, special buildings that were associated with the presidency. So his first pavilion was made to look like Federal Hall in New York, where Washington got sworn in. And then his second one was made to look like Andrew Jackson home, the Hermitage. So the parade itself, right, in terms of the people that participate in the parade and then where the president sits, like it's its own event. Uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're lucky to go to the inauguration, watching the parade is, uh, is, is a great part of it. And the president usually will walk a portion of the route as, as, uh, as well. So we start off with Thomas Jefferson basically walking a mile and a half or a mile, don't know the exact distance, from the Capitol to the White House up to Eisenhower with 70-something bands, marching bands, and three elephants. So we went uh, – it, it evolved quite a bit over the years. And so it's, I guess, more of a like a Macy's Thanksgiving parade now than any other kind of parade. Um, and wasn't there – correct me if I'm wrong, Rob. Didn't Jimmy Carter have a big peanut in his parade? Yeah. So speaking of the Thanksgiving parade, Jimmy Carter uh, did ask to have a inflatable peanut at his inauguration parade. Of course, uh, if you know about Carter, he had the peanut farm in Georgia – 
that he gave up when he became president. So it makes total sense that he would want that. That's kind of his thing. Uh, I don't think any presidents after Carter have attempted to have any inflatables, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, I did not confirm that beforehand. There's a great uh, joke. I think it was uh, Dennis Miller back in the 80s made this funny joke about how you watch parades in the Soviet Union and it was just them parading around their missiles. And then here in the United States, like you watch the Macy's parade and it's like a giant underdog balloon. <laughs> and so the, the juxtaposition between the underdog balloon uh, and then the missiles is pretty, uh, pretty stark. But I also learned you speaking about Jimmy Carter's inauguration. This was an interesting factoid. He, when he chose um, to be, uh, well, he had a choice about what name he would be called uh, during his swearing in. He opted for Jimmy, right? He's not actually, his, his real name isn't actually Jimmy Carter. It's James, right? But he opted to be sworn in under his nickname. And that was the first president that was sworn in under a nickname. I thought that was interesting. And then also for Carter, he was the first president to stay in Blair House uh, beforehand, or the first president-elect to stay in Blair House um, prior to the inauguration itself. So I thought that his um, his inauguration, even though his presidency was pretty brief, his inauguration sort of broke the mold in a couple of ways, which I found sort of interesting. And uh, the Blair House is the guest house across the street yes. where they typically have guests from out of town who are staying, quote unquote, at the White House. They'll stay at the Blair House. Indeed. One of the famous spots, if you ever take a tour of the, the, uh, the White House neighborhood, the presidential neighborhood, no, no uh, presidential neighborhood tour is complete without um, a walk by the Blair House. Okay, one more interesting inaugural day parade event, I guess, is uh, what happened during Nixon's. He had ordered some pigeons. Sorry. He ordered the pigeons to be, what, eliminated? Well, yeah. <laughs> the deal is he was worried about getting pooped on. And so uh, he wanted the, the trees that lined the inaugural route to be sprayed with bird repellent. And then it ended up killing the pigeons. And so instead of getting pooped on, he had to walk down the parade route next to a bunch of dead pigeons. And next to a bunch of dead pigeons. Exactly. It's the most Nixonian thing Ever, right? And then I th- it, <laughs> it's funny to imagine who were, who were the guys that were responsible for the Watergate break and Rob the plumbers, right? Isn't that what they were called? Like the plumbers, like G. Gordon Liddy and the rest of the band of miscreants going around and spraying the, tre- <laughs> the trees to kill off the pigeons. I know they didn't do it, but that's what I like to imagine uh, that uh, that happened. So, yes, the, the pigeons were, were, uh, were killed by Nixon. And then evidently Ulysses S. Grant had birds actually brought in for the inauguration that they were going to release. It was like, oh, it was like chickadees or something like that. And that didn't go well either. So uh, uh, inaugurations and birds are a rather ill-fated combination, it would appear. It would appear. Now, this year's parade is probably not going to happen or not going to happen with the fanfare that all these previous parades that we've talked about have. And Recently, someone was asking me, they said, how can this possibly be? You know, this we have to have the parade. It's the tradition. And it got me thinking uh, about the parade. And it turns out that there was an inauguration that did not have a parade. It was FDR's 1945 inauguration. And the reason makes perfect sense. It's because we were busy with World War II and the country had a lot of other things going on. And we were just not going to have a big celebration with that happening. So the parallels to what we're dealing with now in 2020 are actually more similar than I had originally realized. Yeah, indeed, with uh, with FDR's uh, fourth inaugural. Well, there was a lot that was different, right, about that fourth uh, term. Uh, there wasn't much of a campaign going into that uh, that fourth term, right? That there was a lot of things that that changed uh, because of FDR's sort of successive inaugurations and the length of time and what the what events were in the backdrop of the inauguration um, itself. But um, FDR, that's another great 
inaugural address, though, right? In the pantheon of inaugural addresses, FDR's, well, first and second, but really the first one, right? We have nothing to fear but fear itself. That ranks up there right at the top. So, right, even if he missed one of his inaugural parades because of, you know, the exigencies of war, that uh, his inaugural addresses were, were humdingers. Yeah, the first one is the one that had the famous quote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which is a quote about the Great Depression, not about World War II, which is something that uh, people are often surprised when we visit the FDR Memorial to learn. Of course, the 1945 inauguration, they didn't use the Capitol at all. They just had it at the White House. There was no parade. It was just all kind of in one location. And in some ways, it was good for FDR because he was quite sick at the end of his life. And so to be able to hide the fact that he wasn't doing so well, not having to go from the Capitol to the White House probably helped him out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't have run for that fourth term, too, right? Because he was he was in pretty poor shape, right? Like, he should have called it at three. Four, four, four was pushing it in the state that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in. Yeah, as we learn when we visit the memorial, he only lasted, he lasted less than 100 days into that fourth term before... Harry Truman took over, and Harry Truman took over before World War II was even over. So I, I learned that when Harry Truman got sworn in, that uh, I think it was his 1948 inauguration, that the Chief Justice thought that the S in his name actually stood for something, and it didn't. It was just an S, right? And so he, when he was swearing uh, Harry Truman in, he called him Harry Ship Truman, and then Truman had to say, "I Harry S." Truman, right? So there was this sort of awkward moment during the uh, during the swearing in where they didn't, you know, they, they had a miscommunication, you could say. And then it reminded me of uh, of when President Obama gets sworn in, right? And Justice Roberts flubs the uh, the line. I felt so bad for John Roberts when he flubbed the line, right? Because that's the one time people actually see the Chief Justice, and then you know everybody's watching, and you you want to stick the landing, right? And you got one job to do, and poor Chief Justice Roberts just steps on it. And then it, it was such a a little minor controversy that they had actually had to bring Chief Justice Roberts back to the White House later on to redo it to make sure that the swearing-in was actually official. Yeah, they redid it, so don't, nobody has to worry about whether it was <laughs> yeah, exactly. it was the real deal. Or they, they redid it, and everything was good to go. Uh, but Aaron, I want to thank you for coming and chatting about the inauguration with me, and I know that it's a bummer that the 2021 inauguration is going to be scaled back so significantly. I know a lot of people were really looking forward to this one, and Like I said, it only happens every four years, so the fact that we can't do it is kind of a bummer. But hopefully people have gotten some inspiration from these stories and thought, hey, that sounds pretty cool, and maybe they will check out one in the future. I think that we should, uh, in in place of actually going to the inauguration, Rob, we should celebrate as Andrew Johnson would like us to, and we should all have a drink. That's what <laughs> that's, that's what I think. Have mix some Nyquil with you know something else, and then that's how you should enjoy your inauguration, Andrew Johnson style. We're all going to get on Zoom, and we're all going to take a shot, and <laughs> we'll call that the inauguration. So, Aaron, folks who want to find you, keep up with you, check out all your stuff. Where can they do that? Sure, shameless plug time. All right, www.historicamerica.org. That's our website. Uh, we run a tour company, just like uh, just like Rob does, and we do great tours that have sort of a multi-sensory element. So there are things that you can touch and taste and smell and see and hear on the course of a tour. Of course, uh, we've had to modify the tours a little bit because of COVID, right? So we don't want them to be uh, ways that sort of uh, break distancing protocols at all. But the tours um, are available. And then also, because we're pandemic pivoting, uh, as well, we have some d- new digital offerings that are available for people to uh, to sample. We have a YouTube series called Dead, White, and Blue. It's about the final chapters and final resting places of interesting dead Americans. So if you want to see the grave sites of interesting dead people and learn about how they died, um, go to YouTube, look up Dead, White, and Blue, and it will 
fascinate you. And then finally, uh, our podcast is called A Place in Time. We look at interesting places in American history, and then we tell the stories that are associated with those places. And the uh, episodes that we're working on right now, it's all about the Lincoln Cottage. uh, And we've been working with the folks up at the Lincoln Cottage to get these episodes off the ground. So we're stoked about it. HistoricAmerica.org. YouTube, Dead, White, and Blue, and then A Place in Time, wherever fine podcasts can be found, uh, you can find us. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.